I'd invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In just a moment, we'll begin reading at verse 26. I want to talk with you, uh, both those, thanks, those who are connected with us online today and everybody here. I want to talk with you a little bit about, about where we're going um, over these next uh, 12 months together. Uh, yesterday, October 1st, we officially launched uh, a podcast called The Story That Changes Everything. And some of you hopefully were able to grab one of these bookmarks over the last uh, few weeks. I think we have some still available today if you'd like them. Uh, in some ways, this is a project uh, that I really feel drawn to and called to to do personally. I, I am excited about the chance to get to work through the scripture this year to create moments of reflection each day, uh, to be able to put that on a podcast and share that with those for whom it might be beneficial. Some of you have been gathering with us on Wednesday nights and we'll continue to do that as we go to reflect uh, on the text. I know that for many of you, uh, it's gonna be kind of too big a thing right now to be able to jump in and, and read three chapters a day and participate in that regularly. I just wanna say to you, uh, there's no guilt in that. Um, Jump in on days when you can, if you feel, you know, get up one morning and you realize, I want to turn to the Word today. Where, where are we going to be today? Um, as much as you can enter into that, great. Um, along the journey, I'm going to include some longer conversations with friends and scholars to reflect on larger chunks of Scripture. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is just powerful and beautiful, and I'm going to already apologize. My goal was to make each day about two and a half minutes, and I violate that just wholeheartedly on the first four or five. So there's just too much to talk about in each of those texts. But, um, but this week, I, I ended up sitting down uh, with my friend, uh, Dr. Brad Kelly, who is the Old Testament professor at Point Loma, and we had a wonderful conversation about Genesis 1 through 11. And not only how should we read it, but how does it read us? And, uh, and so there may be some things that you can, can jump in along the way as well. But I'm excited for this journey, and each Sunday uh, we'll be moving along through the text. And so this morning we find ourselves at the, at the very beginning of it, um, at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. And if you're able this morning, um, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word as we look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. And God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food to all the wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes. I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. And God saw everything he had made. It was supremely good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You 
In the beginning, before there were the heavens and the earth, there were chaotic waters. One day, the chaotic waters separated. The fresh, sweet water was called Apsu, and the tumultuous sea water called Tiamat. And from these two primordial gods, new gods were born. And, and from those gods, even more gods were birthed. And these young gods began to proliferate the universe. And unfortunately, like many children, they were loud and out of control. The calm and silence that filled the primordial universe had been shattered. Apsu tried to calm these younger gods, but to no avail. So in frustration, Apsu decided to destroy the gods, but was himself killed by Enki, the god of mischief and wisdom. The gods then made a home out of Apsu's body, and Enki took a wife and gave birth to Marduk, the god of the sun. When Tiamat discovered that her mate Apsu had been killed, she flew into a rage and decided to destroy the loud and rebellious gods. Tiamat created hurricanes and winds and waters and other natural forces to war against the gods. She also created a whole series of 11 serpent-like gods whose bodies were filled with poison to go into attack. All seemed lost for these minor deities until Marduk stepped forward and became their king. He picked up his weapons, filled his body with fire. He's the sun god after all and went off to destroy Tiamat. Using the four winds as a net, he trapped her. Marduk then shot an arrow into Tiamat's heart, causing her to explode and split into two. Out of Tiamat's dying eyes, water flowed, creating the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And from Tiamat's body, Marduk created the heavens with one half of her and the earth with the other half. Some of the gods who had joined Tiamat in her war were captured and they were executed. And from the blood of these rebel gods, humans were formed to serve and to be slaves to the gods. To keep chaos at bay, Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, chose and blessed a ruler to lead in his place, the king of Babylon. The priestly class then was designated to serve all the temples of the lesser gods and to keep them at bay and to do their bidding. The rest of the population, Nampans, we were created to fulfill our roles as the servants of the gods and of their representatives. The story I just shared with you is a rough outline of a story called the Enuma Elish an ancient creation myth told by the Babylonians, a story that can be found in various forms around the time of Judah's exile into Babylon in the 6th century BC. Other ancient cultures like the Assyrians and Persians had their own variations of how the world came to be. Like the Enuma Elish story, they're quite diverse and, and kind of strange from our perspective. However, they, they share some common themes. In each of these cultures, their creation myth usually serves to justify their own existence as a nation or a people and certainly justify the power given to one's ruler as uniquely aligned or blessed by this conquering deity or God. 
And in these various stories, most of humankind end up in one of two categories. Either we are the slaves of the gods doing the work they don't want to do, or we are the warriors of the gods fighting the wars that they don't want to fight. So in either case, we common folk, we are destined to either serve the gods with labor till we die, or go out and die prematurely fighting their battles for them. Now, why does that matter? Some of you are wondering, what in the world has happened to our pastor? Why start a whole year journey through the scripture, the story that changes everything, by telling a dead, ancient, pagan myth? For two reasons. First, as we begin to look at the Genesis story today, we need to be reminded of how pervasive this kind of myth would have been for God's people when these narratives were written down. Stories like the Enuma Elish were the stories that the Judean children learned every day when they went off to Babylonian school. They were the plays that were enacted in the theater. They were the source material for music, for poetry and art. In fact, I think I have a slide today of, of some of the art of, um, of Marduk killing Tiamat. In other words, these stories surrounded them. They were the fuel for the imagination of Judean children living in the midst of Babylon. Are you with me? And because those are the stories and the ways that shape their imagination, then when they get home, then God's people have to turn to the Genesis account, to this beautiful God-inspired account of the creation story that not only tells us primarily the, the who and the why of creation, but it also reminds us that it is a counter-narrative. It is a story that is so different than the story that the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians tell about how we got here. And that counter-narrative has to shape their imaginations, and if it doesn't, then they will be shaped by Tiamat and Marduk and by slavery and war. So let's turn to the creation story this morning, and I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't yet. So I, I want to apologize in advance. If, if there is a kind of shtick that I have that is identified with me, it's what I'm going to do this morning. I think I've done it a couple of times at least in seven plus years now with you, and so some of you will go, oh, here we go again. But I was talking to one of my children, I won't point them out, not long ago. And I was asking them about the days of creation. They got it all wrong. And so I have a sense that you guys would, many of you would not pass the test today. Um, and some of you are new. And so here's my stuff. Are you ready? Here we go. Genesis 1 begins this way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was, and whatever translation you has, have probably says something like this, the earth was formless and void or empty. Many of you know, those words that get translated, formless or empty, are probably my two favorite Hebrew words in all of the Old Testament. Oh, you would do fine on the test. Tohu and bohu. Here's a picture of them. Tohu and bohu. 
Now, forgive my childish imagination, but oftentimes when I teach Genesis 1, I, I say to students, imagine Genesis 1 as a kind of cosmic wrestling match in which the microphone dro- the cosmic microphone drops into the middle of the ring, the announcer grabs it and says, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble. It's the beginning, right? And, um, and in this corner... We have these two twin wrestlers. They are identical twin words, tohu and bohu. If you're taking notes this morning, do not write tofu. You will not get credit on the test for tofu. (laughs) Something very different. Tohu and bohu. The word and in Hebrew is va, and it usually attaches to the second word. So sometimes you'll see this as tohu, va, bohu. In fact, in English, we've created a word, all one word, tohu, va, bohu, which means chaos. I know this because... um, If you subscribe to dictionary.com, like the word of the day, about three years ago, the word for the day was tohu vabohu. And I had, I think, 68 people text me that morning uh, and say, (laughs) Pastor, it's your word. Um, Tohu vabohu. In this corner, we have tohu and bohu, formless and void, twins of chaos. They are always symboled, and they always show up together, and they're always symbolized in the scripture by water. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was tohu and bohu, and darkness covered the face of the deep, the waters. But here's this important other Hebrew word, while a ruach, while the breath of God swept across the face of the waters. So back to my wrestling match. It's as though we say, in this corner we have tohu and bohu, and we don't like them. They cause problems. We throw popcorn at them. We boo at them. But in this corner is the wind, the mysterious presence of Yahweh Almighty. And now we're going to have this wrestling match. And, and so if you'll go to the chart, you guys, we have the, these six days of creation that are so powerful. Tohu, that we oftentimes translate as formless. The first three days, it's as though God takes on three rounds where the tohu jumps in and we have this amazing wrestling match. And on day one, God separates the light from the dark. And then day two, God separates the sea and the sky. The text says he places a dome in the midst of the waters and separates the waters above from the waters below. And then on day three, God separates the dry land out. So if you're with me this morning in the imagination, it's as though the tohu is wrestling, but God is letting him have it for three solid days. And by the end of that third round, the formless is now formed in such fascinating ways. And he's almost knocked out. And as he leans back, he tags his brother Bohu and Bohu jumps into the ring. And now the emptiness takes on Yahweh. And so on days four, five, and six, it says, though God takes on now the emptiness and he fills on day four with the sun, moon, and stars, the text says, and he places them in the dome of the sky, the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night and the stars. And there was evening, there was morning, day four. And then on day five, God fills the sea and the sky with birds and fish of all sorts and kinds. And then on day six, God fills the dry land, not just with vegetation, but with humans and with, or with animals and with humans. If you're paying attention, there's a relationship this direction on the chart. Well, God takes on the formless the first three days. By the end of the first three days, it's all formed. And the emptiness, the bohu that God takes on days four, five, and six is now filled. If you're with me, you can tell there's a beautiful symmetry in the story of creation too. What God forms on day one, the light and dark he fills on day four. What God forms on day two, the See in the sky, God fills on day five with the birds and fish. And what God forms on day, six, on day three, the dry land, God fills on day six with animals and humans. Cool, huh? I know some of you are yet like, yeah, we get it. We get it. 
Some of you have seen this for the first time, and you're, we'll, we'll get the brain matter off the wall. It's awesome, right? <laughs> it's so cool. I've shared this with you before. This could be me overreading the text, but on that chart too, there are three really important words, separation, filling, and blessing, separation, filling, and blessing, separation, filling, and blessing. I do think those words matter. The first three days are separations. The, the second three days are fillings, and then we get day seven, the Sabbath, a, a blessing. Again, I could be pushing the text, but I, I do think when they tell the story, those three words matter. Because they don't just matter to how God created in the first place, but they matter to how God will recreate. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, he'll call him to separate himself out. In order to be filled with God's presence, in order to then go and be a blessing in the world. And not to ruin the end of the story, but when we get to the New Testament, a people called the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, will be called out in order to be filled by the unique presence of the Spirit, in order to then go and be a blessing to the world. And so we have this powerful hymn of creation. But in day six, when God creates humankind, chapter one takes a little break. We, we read it together. It goes into this beautiful poetry. And then God said, let us create humankind in our image according to our likeness. And so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's powerful, this idea that we are created to be in the image of God. What, what does that even mean for humankind to be unique in that kind of way? I think, first of all, it says something unique about the relationship that we have with God. Part of the counter-narrative of Genesis chapter 1 is God didn't create because the gods got in a fight. God did not create because God is bored. God created out of divine love. Not to complicate things too much, but it's actually kind of a mysterious text that biblical scholars aren't quite sure what to do with because God goes into some strange pronouns here about God's self. God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Now, it may just be that in the text, God's kind of using the royal we. Sometimes when I come into the office on a Monday, I say, I'll say something like, we really need to improve what we're doing on Sundays. And I mean, I'm doing fine, but you guys need to step it up, right? <laughs> we need to do something. But perhaps in the mystery of Genesis chapter 1, the God who we now understand as Trinitarian Father, Son, and Spirit unsurprisingly creates humankind, and when he creates them, male and female, he creates them. Creates us as a people in community, as reflections of the very unique love of God. And so if you're with me every day as the Judean children go off and hear narratives about how they're slaves or how they are warriors, they come home and are reminded, no, you are created out of the divine love of God and our images of God. It is for relationship. It's for community. It is out of divine love for which you were created. And then they're given a kind of task. And then God said, be fruitful. That's kind of a cool command. 
So you guys know, Deb and I have four adult kids now. Every once in a while, I will see families with like four children, and I'll think, what were they thinking? <laughs> and then I'll remember, oh wait, we have four kids. <laughs> but you know, as I, as I think about our four kids, I, I love them so deeply. Caleb is, is so smart, and so thoughtful, and so creative, and such a good teacher. And, and Caleb has always had a heart that just wants to do what's right. Noah came into the world big, and he has just kind of stayed that way. He's just big and fun and joyful. I would go anywhere in the world with that kid. He's so fun to travel with, and it's just such a joy wherever he goes. Jonah is so funny and so loving. Every morning, and he's still living with us. We're kicking him out in March. He's getting married, but he still lives with us. Every morning that he showers, he sings at full voice in the shower. By the way, if you're listening to the podcast and it sounds like my house is haunted by dead Italians, <laughs> it's Jonah singing opera in the shower, right? During, while I'm recording. And it makes me laugh and I, I can't imagine how much it makes God laugh. But he is so loving and so delightful. And if you just give that kid a story to tell or a part to play on a stage, he just lights up the world. Sophie is just my, one of my favorite people in the universe. She is such this amazing combination of compassion and self-assurance. She's going to be such a good nurse, loving you and then telling you, you got to get out of that bed, honey. Right? Like she is going to be so good at that. I, Deb and I love those four kids so much. And here's the thing. I cannot, I now cannot imagine the world without them. And in my opinion, I know I'm biased, but in my opinion, the world would, be, would have been such a lesser place if they did not exist. And when God says to us, go be fruitful and multiply, that's a reminder that if we feel that way about our children, both the ones that we give birth to and the ones we adopt and the ones we mentor and the ones we care for as the church, if we feel that way about all these kids, how much more does God delight in you? And feel like, had you not been here, the world would not have been what it was intended to be. So be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, fill the earth. Many scholars think that's actually a different command than just go have kids. It's a command that some people call the cultural mandate. Look around this room. So many cool things in this room that people made. Beautiful windows. The structure in which we gather together that has become this holy space, this thing that I've hung on my ears so I don't have to scream for you to hear me. These seats that some of you have fallen asleep in. This technology that allows some of you to watch from home. Like there's, there's so much goodness in this room that is our fault. The God that creates wheat then says to humankind, see what you can do with it. And we crush it, throw some water in it. Mess around with it, throw it in an oven, and you get bakeries. <laughs> you know that moment where you walk into a bakery and you go, ah. It's as though God creates wheat and says, this is good, but then God smells the bread that humankind makes and says, that, that is really good. That is really good. The music, the art, the creativity, 
As we'll see, again, I don't want to ruin it, but if we go to the very last pages of the scripture, so much of what humankind makes enters into the city that we call the new creation. And God delights in that and gives us responsibility and then says, have dominion, care for it. There's another graph I want to show you that often when I think about the image of God, it kind of looks like this, especially as we move forward into chapters 2 and 3. God has created us to be, to have every quality necessary to reflect or to image God in the world so that then we can reflect that goodness to each other. We can reflect that goodness and care of creation. We can reflect that, that care even in proper self-love and sense of who we are. When things are right, that's what it looks like. Don't skip ahead, but it doesn't always look that way. But that's the way it's supposed to look. And when things go right, God will not stop until it looks that way again. When I was at Azusa Pacific, uh, they started an archaeological dig project in Israel and it's still going. When Noah and I went, it was the first year and we just got to kind of dig around. And at that point, they were just looking for the walls of this city called Abel Beth Makkah, a city mentioned a couple of times in Kings that's underneath all of this dirt on this mound. They've been digging for a while now and they've started to find some really cool stuff. They, they actually made the cover of Archaeology magazine a couple of years ago when they, they found the head of a figure. The head's not much bigger than our fist. Um, they didn't find the body, uh, but they found this, this head that, that was really beautifully preserved. You can still see all the color and detail of this sculpture. But as they dated it, they, they dated it somewhere probably in the, in the reign of King Ahab. Now, there's no way to know if it's actually the head of a figure of King Ahab, but, but it could be. And certainly comes from that time. And part of their speculation is that in this city that probably never would have seen King Ahab in person, that this city had at least one image, maybe more, of the king made. So that if he ever showed up in person, we'd know we probably should take care of him. And who is our ruler? In the ancient world, it is not unusual for images of the ruler to be sent throughout the land to be reflections of who the king is in the world. And it's in that kind of text then that the image of God says, you and I have been created with every quality necessary to go into the world and to be reflections of who God is. I think this is why when we get to the Ten Commandments, one of the commands is not to make graven images of our God. Certainly that's because God is spirit and certainly Israel is trying to stay away from the idolatries of their neighboring nations. But, but I also am convinced that we do not make images of our God because God is making his image in us, forming us to be reflections. And so why is this important? Certainly I think at times like the 6th century BC when Judah found itself in exile in Babylon and Babylon is telling Judah's children all these strange stories about how their slaves or their warriors, they come home to hear a counter narrative about how no, they have been created to be friends of God, to be reflections of God. 
And we have all been made in that image, not just the king or not just the priestly class, but we all, no matter what color, ethnicity, language, we have all been made in the unique image of God. And therefore, every single person in this room, regardless of skills or abilities, is a reflection of the divine. What a powerful counter story we have to tell. I know why you have to tell it in the 6th century BC, but why do you have to tell it in the 21st century AD? We don't really tell those pagan myths anymore, although you can find them on YouTube. We don't really tell them. But we have our own stories now. I think the creation story we largely tell in the 21st century doesn't include Marduk and Tiamat, but, but the story often goes like this. The world happened by accident. A fortunate accident, but an accident nonetheless. And the world someday will end by accident. Not a fortunate one, an unfortunate one, but an accident nonetheless. And here are you and I, here accidentally, between two accidents. We can either despair about that or we can decide to make some meaning out of it. And so we tell ourselves stories about how to try to create meaning. Like, so if you have more stuff than other people, you are worth more than them. Or we tell stories that say, if you are more alluring, forgive the adjective, but if you are more sexy than others, you are worth more than others. If you have more power and control, you are worth more than others. If if you have as many pleasures as you can hoard into your life, you are worth more than others. The problem, of course, is that those stories become really destructive. And also, even as we're telling them, we, we know we're making them up. To go down just a little rabbit trail this morning, I, I've been doing a lot of reading about how oftentimes you can tell What's, what a culture is about based upon the dominant emotional and psychological challenges that a generation faces. If you step back two or three centuries, the dominant psychological and emotional challenge for those generations is what we call mania. I've mentioned this several times. I'm teaching a class on John Wesley right now. And, and when I think about a couple of my heroes in faith, both Martin Luther and John Wesley, both of them had a little mania in their life, meaning this, both of them had really demanding fathers who expected them to live into the family name and be quite successful, and both of them struggled with, can I do that? Like, there's so many expectations on me to live into this thing. Can I do that? And when you're not sure you can do it, you start to panic a little bit, and you get what's called mania. Those aren't the dominant disorders of our day. 
And please, as I say this, many in this room, including myself, suffer at some level from these two things. It's very much a cultural moment for us. And it's not a shame. It's, it's a reality of who we are. And we need help. But the two dominant dysfunctions, if you will, or the two dominant ways emotionally and psychologically we struggle in this age are anxiety and depression. Anxiety, some theorists say, happens for a culture when, when we're not sure we have a story to live in. And so we're anxious. We don't know what to do. And so then we create stories about ourselves, our identity. And, and in this day and age, thankfully, we have Instagram to post that on. Or we can create a podcast and offer it out to the world and say, love me. And hopefully somebody does. And my anxiety is, as I offer this identity, this meaning that, uh, that I've put together out in the world, will somebody please affirm it? And if you don't, then I'm really anxious that it's not important and therefore I'm not important. Are you with me? Which also then enters into forms of depression. Because if all we are are people trying to make meaning in between two cosmic, cosmic accidents, then all this work I'm doing comes to naught. It really doesn't matter much. So maybe we should find ways to stay distracted from that or to find things that will allow me to soothe my sense of despair and meaninglessness with various substances or addictions. Are you with me? That makes sense. And so we don't tell stories of Marduk and Tiamat, but our stories nonetheless shape us and they show up in all sorts of forms. They show up in the stories we tell, the songs we sing, the art that we often make. And so we gather together in this place to say, that is not our story. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was chaos, but he made a very good order out of it. And in the midst of it, he created you in his image. Out of love and dignity, with responsibilities and a calling that matter, not just now, but for eternity, because you're doing them in the name of God. And therefore, your life has purpose and meaning and dignity You are in the image of God. Mm. We have to remember that. I fear that we will forget it if we aren't reminded again and again and again. You are loved. You have purpose. You have a calling. You are the image of God. There's so much I think we'll discover that's unique about this story and important as a counter way of being in the world. One thing that I love about this story, one thing that we will constantly have to remember is how God acts. God in this story 
breathes God's breath into our lungs, comes to us, abides with us, walks in the cool of the garden with us. A few chapters in, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a funny story, actually tragic, but funny. The people have a new invention, the brick, and they decide they're going to build a tower up to God, to the heavens. Come, let us build this big project. The funny part of the story is then God says, come, let's go down and see what they're doing. It's futile to try to get up to God, but God keeps coming down to us. Most profoundly in the story that we remind ourselves of week after week is that God came down and became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we gather around the table this morning, we are reminded of a love that formed us, a love that gives us dignity, a love, a love that has made us in God's image. But this morning we are reminded that we see that most clearly in the love of Jesus Christ. And that those who are created to be in the image of God are also created to be in the image of Christ. And so we come this morning to receive that love that we need, but to also invite the Spirit to transform us into a reflection of his love for others and for the sake of the world. In just a moment, some folks are going to help me serve. But as we take this meal, look at me. Remember this today. You are not here accidentally or unintentionally. You have been made in the image of God. And people made in God's image are too dear to him to let them go astray. He desires more than anything else for you to discover that love, to allow that love to change you, and to live out the mission that God has given you in your life to extend that love to others. So God help us today. As we gather around this table this morning, make it a table of remembrance. Every time I read Genesis 1, I think about those 6th century Judeans so worried that the stories of Babylon were capturing their children's imaginations. So desperate for them to know, no, you are not the slaves of the gods, you were created to be God's co-partner and friend. And as we gather today, God, my heart breaks for so many, not just young people, but old people I know who feel like their life doesn't matter, is accidental, is meaningless and purposeless. And we gather today to be reminded that is not the story you tell to us. We are your creation, made in your image, called to be reflections of who you are in the world. And so remind us of that love as we take broken body and shed blood together this morning. And make us what we eat today.
make us the body of Christ for the sake of the world. Amen. Amen. Those of you who are going to help, would you come help me?
Let me pray a prayer of blessing. God, our creator and sustainer, we hold in our hands very common things today, bread and cup. But they are a reminder to, do, to us today of a very, very uncommon truth. You love us. So much so that you have breathed your breath in us. You have given your son for us. You have come to us. And so remind us today of how valuable we are to you and of the gifts that you've given to us that you have called us then to share with others. Make us reflections of your son, Jesus Christ. May the world know this story, not just because they hear it from our lips, but they see it in our lives in the ways that we value all of those around us. Make us the body of Christ for the sake of the world. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he, he lifted it, he gave thanks for it, and then he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take, let us eat it this morning in remembrance of his love. After supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it. He said to them, this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take, let us drink it this morning in remembrance of a love that reconnects us to God and makes us the image of Christ in the world. May it be so. Make us the body of Christ, we pray. And God's people said, amen. Stand with me. Let all the earth rejoice. 
trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice, and so we say, how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and oh, we'll see how great, how great. Sing with me how 
God's people said, amen, amen. I don't know if you know this this week, but uh, Ashley and Ryan were at Kansas City at seminary this week, Ashley preaching it up at the preacher's conference. I heard you brought it. If you got it, bring it, right? Like, uh. And Ryan led the worship. So proud of both of you. Thanks for representing us there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Excited for uh, those of you interns who introduced yourself earlier. Um, truly, more than anything, we want to be a healthy place of ministry for you um, so that you can discover all the things that God has for you in your future. And if that helps us, great. We want to help you. And so um, we pray that this year is a blessing for you. If you listen well this morning, um, it's good that we were here. For too often, we are told stories repeatedly that seem to tell us we are of little or no value other than the value we can make on our own which as we lay in bed in the middle of the night, we realize isn't really worth very much. <laughs> but you are made in the image of God. And he has placed his call on you. And that makes you of inestimable worth. And so God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the creeping things along the ground. And so God created you in his image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. And so let us go and reflect his love to an eagerly awaiting world. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.